Welcome to the IFE podcast series. Today's podcast is a recording of a grand challenge lecture given by Dr. Henrik Christensen from the Institute for Contextual Robotics, University of California in San Diego. Dr. Christensen's lecture is entitled Opportunities and Challenges in Robotics, and it was delivered at QUT's Gardens Point campus on Friday 14th of July, 2017. We hope you enjoy this Grand Challenge Lecture. Thank you for the very nice introduction and, and thank you for inviting me to um, talk about something I'm very passionate about. Robotics and the future of, of robotics and, and how it's going to change all of your lives. I think if we look sort of a few years into the future, you should all expect that robots will, you're all going to have robots. So, uh, so it, it's an interesting sort of to think about how is this going to impact us. So I want to give you a little bit about what are some of the big drivers that's changing this. So I want to talk a little bit about what are some of the opportunities and, and why don't you have robots yet. So we'll talk about this. Uh, so uh, some of the things that's happening in the world is that we're going from a world of mass manufacturing to a world of, of mass customization. You are all really difficult customers. Uh, so, so that sort of plays into that we now no, no longer expect to get a single product, we expect to get a variety of products and should be mine and not, I don't want the same car as Peter, I want my car, you know. At the same time we're getting this sort of democratization to unmanned vehicles. We're using unmanned vehicles for all sorts of things and it's really empowering us in, in a number of different ways. Uh, and another factor that gets into this is sort of, as a society, certainly in most of the Western world, we're getting older. Society is getting older by seven hours a day. So it's uh, an interesting sort of fact that, that the good news is it's not more than 24 hours a day. So, you know, I will still, uh, I don't have infinite life yet. Uh, but, you know, it's so interesting to think about this. Uh, so, as an example, this is a perfectly good Audi A4. It's available in four million different configurations. You can get it with 256 different steering wheels, uh, as an example. And that really challenges us. It just makes life really complicated. Somebody wanted it with a heating steering wheel. Some wanted it with built-in telephones and with automatic gears and all this. It, it makes life really complicated for us as, as engineers because I'm going to have to accommodate this fact that we have this tremendous variability. And I'll come back and talk a little bit about how we actually do this. And of course. We're all going to see driverless cars. I'll talk a little bit more about driverless cars and how this is going to disrupt the, the automotive industry. So, so my own prediction is that kids born today will never have to drive a car. So uh, it, you have to start thinking about this, that, that you know, I live in a place where I spend 45 minutes every day sitting in traffic. That's a monumental waste of time. And I think it's something like 16,000 man years a day in the US that's wasted in sitting in traffic. What if we could change this? But also, as you grow older, you know, we lose our sight, we lose all sorts of senses, uh, and that in some cases challenges people in terms of can, can I continue to have mobility with autonomous driving cars? It's like an Uber, but with no driver. So it becomes interesting for us to think about how does this technology get into, into life. So I'll talk about that. We're oops, starting to see autonomous delivery services. Recently, I was at an Amazon conference where they, whenever we needed it, they would deliver sunscreen to us 
it would be delivered by drones. So whenever I said, oh, Peter looks a little bit red, you know, then a drone would arrive and deliver him sunscreen, uh, fully autonomously. That's pretty cool. So, so we're getting this uh, very much. Um, one of the drivers we're seeing, as I mentioned, is that people are getting older. Uh, so these are our prototypical customers. A few years ago, it was sort of the double income, no kids type of people. Now this is where, where the economy is. This is where you see the, the enormous amount of wealth that's sort of being accumulated. And for most cases, the, the baby boomers are difficult customers. So that's sort of what Trump is playing into right now in the US. You know, he can sort of say, I'm not going to pay for your health care. These people have enough money in their bank because, OK, how, what's it going to cost me? Uh, so we have to figure out how we help these people build robots for their daily lives. The good news for you is that Japan is worse off than you are. The bad news is that's not much of a consolation. So Japan here we're seeing is doing sort of a tremendous aging right now and is already very close to getting to where you almost have as many people that are retired as a, as a number of people working in your uh, work life. That's a huge challenge. Then we're seeing here uh, Europe and the, the US. And down here we're seeing sort of the red curve. They're a little bit behind in China. And that's primarily because of the one child per family. They will eventually get to also a place where something like there are 1.5 people on the workplace for every one person that's on secondary income. That's going to be a, a big challenge to our welfare system and to the overall economy. And we all have all sorts of quirks that we get as we grow old. We have less mobility, we become forgetful. And the question is, how can robots help us do some of those problems? And we're moving into people want to build, both live in cities. Um, you can very much see this. I don't have a map for, for Australia, but here is one for the US, where there are some places in the middle where the average distance to a neighbor is ridiculous. And that's also very much true here. So the question is, when we are in these kinds of environments, this challenge is how we do logistics. The challenge is how we think about things uh, in, in a variety of different ways. So we need to figure out how can we build technology that will empower you to live in these environments and do uh, really interesting things. So overall, when we think about IT, we sort of come from a world of, of these kinds of computers. Then we've seen over the last few years a, a tremendous progress on having mobile devices, and we've gotten a ridiculous amount of computing power. And, and we see the, the future very much being, how do I combine high degree of mobility with a large degree of computing power into thinking about very uh, agile devices that you can use in your daily life, uh, whether it's for using speech or all sorts of other things, we're going to get to a really interesting place. Recently, I did a count in our home in, in uh, San Diego we have about 300 computers in our home. So just to give you, and it's not because I live in nerd heaven, uh, you know, so, so it is actually sort of the number of things that you would have when you count in uh, burglary alarms, ACs, and all of these other things that you have in your home. And we need to figure out how can we actually leverage this. So, so the first obvious question, is, of course, is what's a robot? And um, it's actually a difficult question. There's very little sort of universal agreement on what a robot is. So, so there's many different. Robots really come from forced labor, uh, from CapEx play uh, back in the, the 1920s, where they really talk about sort of forced labor. Then we've seen sort of popular stories by Isaac Asimov and 
today we have still no agreement on what a robot is. Uh, so, so there are more definitions today than ever before. But, but you should, to me, you should sort of think about a robot as having a way of physically interacting with the world, a way of understanding what the world looks like where you're operating, and some level of intelligence to understand this. And it's this combination that makes it possible for us to do. So, so we have you know, traditional industrial robots down here in the green plane. We're starting to see some smart ways of interacting with the world in the orange plane. And we're starting to see intelligent homes in the blue plane. And which when we combine all of these that we really get to what is a robot and how can we use it in our daily lives. One of, so my claim to fame is that I've uh, been writing sort of a 15-year strategy for where do we think uh, robotics is going. So I went to the US about 10 years ago from, from Sweden and wrote sort of a, a strategy for where do we think robotics is 5, 10, 15 years out. Yeah, and that's some of the things I'll talk about today. We did sort of a revision in 2013. And whenever you get a new president, you want to make sure that you have a new strategy. So uh, unfortunately, I was um, slightly optimistic. So on November 7th, the day before the election, I had to publish a roadmap and I had two different introductions. I had a Hillary introduction, I had a Trump introduction, and on November 7th I said, I know where this is going. So I put in my Hillary introduction and I sent it to print. 24 hours later I realized that that was maybe not the best decision I'd made. Um, so, uh, but it was very interesting how bad we are doing predictions. So there are these roadmaps that sort of talk about where, where are we and, and, and where do we think society is 5, 10, 15 years out? Uh, and given that we've done three of them, we can actually go back and see how good are we at predicting. So here we did five and 10 years out, so we should have a prediction here. And we should have a prediction here. So, and we've been remarkably good at actually predicting where do we think the world is going. So one of the areas where we're seeing this is we're seeing robotics being used in, in the automotive industry. The automotive industry is one of the places where we have by far the largest number of robots that are being used. Uh, this is a Tesla factory, and, and typically when people say, okay, so automotive factory, automated, we're done. And that's a, a very sort of common perception that all automotive factories are fully automated. It is the area where we have the most automation. There's one robot for every 10 people in a highly automated car factory. So we have only automated 10% of the work in automotive factories. Still a lot of things left. And it's primarily because you are these difficult customers that want uh, you know, leather seats and your own Bose system and, and whatnot into your cars. Uh, so we're seeing this. The other area where we're seeing a high degree of automation is in the electronics industry. So the average lifetime for a cell phone is 12 months. And that implies that we need to be able to automate this very efficiently to be able to do this. And we are getting to a place where we can automate this. Uh, a typical manufacturing line will do somewhere around 25,000 cell phones a day. Um, so we can actually generate a lot of those. But they have to sort of survive over time. Uh, and we keep getting more and more of these productions. If we go in and look at sort of traditional manufacturing, then and look at sort of comparative sectors for robotics in the US, we will typically see an annual growth of about 9% varies from 2 to 22. IP companies, that could be Qualcomm, Oracle, a number of those, are also making a lot of money, but not as much money as robotics. Entertainment and toys, actually not growing as fast as you would think. Media, home appliances, don't invest in home appliances. It's a, it's a dead business. 
capital equipment, this would be a Caterpillar, John Deere, those kinds of things. Automotive, some growth, but not fantastic. Logistics is a big area. And that's again because you were interested in getting your products, you want to be able to order it. And by the time you press buy, you wanted somebody to ring on your doorbell and say, here you go. So, so the, the areas where we're really seeing some big growth is in logistics, and it's very much in robotics. So it's one of our current growth sectors for being able to do sort of economic growth. One of the areas that have impacted this is very much salaries. Unfortunately, I don't have Australian salaries on here. But uh, you can see, I used to live in Denmark and in Sweden. That's an expensive place. And for that reason, we have a, a very large amount of automation going on uh, in those areas, whereas you know, Mexico doesn't have that much because it's cheap. But the world is changing. So China is right now, over the last decade, or yeah, about the last decade, has seen a 350% increase in salaries. And because of this, it's not so attractive to invest in China as it was a decade ago. That's why you're seeing the biggest adoption of robotics in the world today is in China. The annual growth in robotics adoption in China is 50% a year. So it's a massive take up uh, for this because if they don't, jobs are gonna go to Malaysia and elsewhere in Southeast Asia and they're not gonna stay in China. China is no longer competitive without automation, which is sort of a, a very interesting, you know, I wouldn't have expected that. So we're seeing factories also come back. So we are now building laptops in the US which I would never have predicted. We buy, we're building high-end uh, Apple computers in the US. They're not made in, South, in Southeastern Asia anymore. So we're starting to see a lot of the jobs that used to go away coming back to the home market. They're getting closer to the customers so that we can do this here. This is a very traditional uh, robotics factory in, uh, for basically doing the welding jobs. There are no people here, so it's all sort of fully automated. Uh, typically, we would say the plate shop, the welding shop, and the paint shop are fully automated. The rest of it, there's still a lot of people. So we're trying to get to robots that look like this. So they're getting away from this highly mechanized to robots that look like this. This is robots that was made by one of my former colleagues at Georgia Tech, Andrea Tomas, where we're looking at how can we build robots that would allow us to interact with them just as you would do with a peer. So, so how can I get to a place where I can build a robot that will uh, basically go in and you can basically show it rather than programming it. You go out and you show it a particular task and uh, it will use a variety of cues. It will talk to you. It will use the color of its ears to tell you if it's embarrassed or happy or what it is. And then using this, we can do very simple actions. We're trying to get to this where we can build robots that would be able to, you can have it at home. You might not have any computer experience and you would still be able to do this. So one of my favorite applications is I want to have one of those for cooking. So I love to cook. And I would like, like to be able to tell it and say, today we're going to make Swedish meatballs. And when I start chopping the onions, the robot is smart enough to say, let me run out and get the minced meat from the fridge and bring it back. So when I'm done chopping the onions, I'll say, here's your meat. You know, having the perfect assistance in the, in the kitchen would be very nice. If you could do this, there's a lot of other functions you could do. So the other area we're, we're coming in, so we're seeing getting these much more flexible robots that have a natural interaction with people. We're integrating this with having much more tracking of electronics, understanding where everything is in, in our environment. So we're using analytics to be able to do this. We've done this extensively in the finance industry, in real estate, and it's now going into manufacturing. 
and it's being driven by forces you wouldn't expect. So it's very much being driven by, here's an example of, there's, there's a number of these interfaces out there that are trying to tie together the entire factory. And, and you say, okay, that's probably going to be driven forward by the traditional industrial companies. No. 40% of all the interfaces are owned by Amazon. Amazon owns the way of integrating the future factory. Because they need to be able to do one-offs. They need to be able to do something. And they need to be able to deliver it to you in very little time. So in San Diego, we have one-hour delivery services. I can order most things on the Amazon store. and say I want it in one hour, 40 minutes later, knocks on the door and said, here you go. And that's a huge challenge to figure out how do we do this. So Amazon is doing all of this. Their biggest competitor in this space in the US is Walmart. Yeah, they also exist, but with one interface. Uh, so in comparison, there's, there, Amazon is uh, basically killing Walmart by being able to have a much higher degree of agility in how we do e-commerce. And just as a reference, e-commerce grows 40% a year. So if you want to invest in stock, you should go and look at e-commerce before you go and look at most other areas. The other thing we're building is we're building collaborative robots. We're building robots that we can work with in our daily lives. Uh, so we want to be able to, to go in and do this. And to do this, one of the things we want, I want to have a robot in my home that's very easy to interface to. So most of us will want to use voice to talk to it and say, could you go pick up the, uh, the meat or whatever I can do. And we've gotten used to that services like the Amazon Alexa service will allow us to use natural language. It will do all sorts of accents, even mine. And, you know, and, and we'll do it really well. Now we have more than 10,000 different services available through Amazon. So I just got a new house. My oven is on the internet. So I can actually, on my way back from, from work, I can call up my Alexa and say, could you turn on the oven at 200 degrees Celsius and turn on the steam? And when I come home, you know, the oven is on this and I can turn on all sorts of other appliances. I can turn off the alarm. So the fact that I've gotten to a place where I can talk to my house and I can talk to my oven opens up for a lot of really cool opportunities to integrate automation into my everyday life. We're seeing robots getting deployed for doing cleaning services. I have two vacuum cleaners at home. I was on the team that developed one of the first vacuum cleaners. And Marie is not in the audience, my wife, so I can say this. I'm very proud I developed one of the first robots that truly suck. Uh, <laughs> and in this case, this is a good thing. But also we're getting sort of professional services that can do concierge services. We're getting various kinds of monitoring. So we can monitor, for instance, elderly people in their homes to verify that they haven't fallen, that they're still doing okay, that they can do all of this. Uh, and we're seeing robots for, for education and things like that. We're also seeing robots for autonomous driving. I hate this picture because this has nothing to do with autonomous driving. Very few places in the world is it sunny 24-7. In most cases where you're driving, there's traffic. And in most cases, there are sort of pedestrians and a few other things around. This is easy. This is dead simple. But you know, I want to get to a place. These products are coming out now. So Cadillac and GM is coming out with a car uh, in October this year that will automate highway driving. They guarantee on your highways, whether it's in Australia or in Southern California where it is, you can basically get on the, the highway out here and say, I, I need to go to the airport and hands off until you get to the airport and we'll take you there. So this is where we're starting. It will very much be on the highway. There won't be a lot of pedestrians. There won't be a lot of bicycles, but it's really getting there. 
we see that all of the computers in the car. So the car is really sort of becoming a mobile computing platform rather than anything else. And you're seeing this. We're extracting very detailed information that allows us to understand what's going on in the environment around us. Even when you have sort of traffic settings, we can actually do this very well. We can track the people. Even though there's a green light here, this guy was clearly running a red light. And, and we can do all of this and understand what's going on around us. This we still can't do. I used to live in Sweden, and sometimes the world looked like this, and we still don't know how to do autonomous driving in, in those situations. One of the challenges we, we have is how do we interface to these, but also how do we handle the data? Most cars will generate four terabytes of data every day. That's sort of four times the computing power in my laptop or storage space in my laptop. So we're going to have a big data problem of how we do this. But also we're going to have a problem. So, so the prediction from the industry is that already today we're getting partially automated cars. You can do this on the highway. It will drive. You don't have to get engaged. We will get highly automated cars 2020. So it will handle 90% of your driving. And the automotive industry is saying by 2025 you will have fully automated cars. This is what is called level five autonomy. That will imply you're buying a car with no steering wheel. There will not be a steering wheel anywhere in the car, which is going to be, I, I love my car, so I'm going to be a little bit, I'm going to be one of the late adopters because uh, I still want to be able to drive. But this is what they claim. I think it's a little bit optimistic. I think we'll be a little bit later, but you should expect this. But also for these cars, we have to figure out how do we interface with pedestrians? How do we interface with traffic lights? So, so we're thinking about how this is going to automate life in many different ways. But also, once we get to this, it's going to change your cities. Because this applies that Peter can now go to work, and then he can say to the car, come and pick me up again at 5, and the car goes home. So you don't need parking spaces anymore. Which is sort of an interesting thing, that you don't need this anymore. And uh, so, so it's going to fundamentally do this. And the question is, do you really want to own a car? Will car not become a service? where you just basically order and say, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this softly for the kids today uh, in the colleges. You know, when you go to the grocery store on, on Wednesday, you want to rack. Give me the cheapest possible car to get me to the grocery store and back. Uh, and then, you know, on, on Saturday, you're going to Ikea to buy some furniture, so you want a truck. Saturday night, you're going on a date. I want a Cadillac, you know, so I want my Porsche to do this. So now it's a service. You tell me what your value is, and we will give you the corresponding car. It's going to be pretty cool. Same time, we're sort of in a place where, how do we, until then, how do we interface to our cars? And there's sort of a thought-provoking video, because this is what you can do in a Tesla today. Uh, there's a very nice video here of a couple that's out driving in an autonomous driving car. They're supposed to be able to take over the car at four seconds notice. I think you're going to realize that um, we might have a problem. Uh, you know, people just trust these guys. They say, oh, yeah, cool. You can now have your advertiser on your way to the restaurant. Can you play funny games? You know how to use a sword. Um, but, you know, it's uh, pretty interesting to think about uh, this. You know, they, there's no way they can take over. Our research indicates that it will take you about 14 seconds to gain control and have contextual awareness in the car. Um, but we sort of think that, you know, the most dominant mode will be this. And we're seeing this, if you go on YouTube, you're going to see lots of people that sleep on their way to and from work. Uh, so that's not necessarily safe, so we need to figure out how we do this well.
We're seeing new robots coming out for, for all sorts of things. So I mentioned e-commerce grows about 40% a year. So we're seeing lots of use of, of robots to be able to do this. One of the motivations is if you look at a standard warehouse, it looks like this. There's two things wrong with this warehouse. The first one is that 60% of the space is filled with air. That's a lousy investment. So especially if you're downtown Brisbane, you know, you really don't want this. And the other is that there are no people in here. Uh, so what if we could do this with robots? So the company Kiva designed sort of, they thought about what if we take the warehouse and we turn it upside down? But what if we could change it so that the operators that run around in here stand still and all the shelves move? So what if we, if all of your shelves could drive around on robots and we have all of these sort of 400 or up to a thousand of these robots running around in your warehouse, then your warehouse looks like this. There are no longer any aisles, so I've just saved, just doubled the capacity of my warehouse. Over here I have a storage area, here I have a highway, and over here I have people that do picking. They used to be able to pick 60 items an hour, now they can pick 600 items an hour. So I just increased the productivity of the workforce by an order of magnitude. That's talking about something that, that moves. Uh, and at the same time, I can shift this around. So we know what you buy on Fridays, and we know what you buy on, on Mondays, and we can shuffle around the shelves so it's actually much more efficient than it would be otherwise. Which is really cool. So there's still something wrong with this. It's only done in one plane. So we're now starting to see these come out where your warehouse is up to 10 stories high, and you have 400 robots on every one of these. So you can now do this. And that's because we want to be able to do Amazon Express and Amazon Prime and be able to deliver you to this. We're seeing this also being used for food now. So you actually will come in and have some really cool opportunities of, of using this to, to drive around. Uh, so your world is getting sort of redefined. You're thinking about it as getting more efficient groceries. I'm thinking about it as a robotics problem. We're seeing autonomous flying vehicles. Uh, these vehicles will fly up to 36 hours uh, unmanned. So we can fly from Guam to Iraq and back and still be on station for a fair number of hours. There are no reasons today why we have pilots on airplanes. So I, I flew here last Sunday, took 14 hours from LA. The pilot spent 15 minutes taking off and then he spent 13 and a half hours playing Angry Birds and then he spent 15 minutes landing the airplane. I want to take out the 13 and a half hours with the Angry Birds and put him on the ground so he can now operate a fleet of these vehicles. Technologically, we're there. We don't have a legal framework that would allow us to operate these in civilian airspace. If we had, we would do this. So the prediction is that by 2022, transoceanic and transcontinental air freight will be unmanned. You're no longer going to have pilots. So if your son or daughters are thinking about becoming pilots, Go home and tell them that's a really bad proposition because they're going to be out of a job fairly soon. It's going to take a little bit longer before I'm ready to go on one of those where the pilot says, I'm sitting in a command center in Kansas and I'm going to fly you to Brisbane. I'm going to say, no, 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 you're going with me. Uh, but, you know, we will soon get to that point where we say, oh, yeah, sure, he's in Kansas, it's perfectly okay. So, technologically, we're there, we will see this, it's really going to change our world. Already now, we're seeing this also with autonomous driving cars. They will be used for delivery services. So like you have Ubers today, you'll soon have autonomous driving cars that will drive you, that, that you'll order something, it will be picked up for you and be delivered to your 
door within the next hour. So we're going to have this tremendous sort of opportunities of doing this. Another area where we're seeing robots coming in is, of course, in healthcare. We're all getting older. We're all having various kinds of quirks coming in. So it's important for us to think about how can we use robots. Already today, there are more than 2,000 of these Da Vinci robots out there. And a fair number of us will end up having prostate cancer. Uh, a, fair, a fair number of those will have to go in and get your, your, your prostate removed. If you do it in open surgery, it'll take three hours. You're going to lose two liters of blood. You're going to have to be home for uh, at least a week. And there's a significant risk that you become incontinent and impotent. That doesn't sound very promising. If we do it with a robot, we can do it in 45 minutes. You're going to lose a Dixie cup of blood and we reduce the chance of incontinence and impotence by 90%. So this is an easy healthcare proposition. We're going to use these for cardiac surgery, for brain surgery, for prostate, for, for liver, for kidney, because it's incredibly effective and we're minimizing the, the time. So if you go in and get a prostate surgery, you can typically leave the hospital the same day or the next day. You can walk out of the hospital, it's not a big deal. So that's very encouraging, we can do this. <clears throat> We're also starting to see this for hip and knee replacement because we can actually, we can do this much more accurately than the surgeon can. Here's an example of an exoskeleton. We have a fair number of people that get spinal cord injury and other sort of uh, complex complications. We can strap them into an exoskeleton and they can walk four to six hours a day. It's good for your cardiac system and for all sorts of other, or your vestibular system. Uh, so we're seeing this. These are now products that are out, that can be used. And of course, we're working on a robot that would allow people to stay another five years in their home. How can we handle people that get uh, dementia? Tell them that you are aware you didn't take your medication today, or you are aware you left the, the oven on. But also, we can help people get out of bed, take a shower, get dressed, uh, prepare a meal, and participate in social activities. So this is going to be a, a really big deal that we can do this. So we're seeing these for elderly care, we're seeing a number of robots, and we're seeing it for kids. And here we, in particular, we can think about it, how can we use this for doing education? So that's really cool. For the elderly companions, we are looking at, as I said, for mental assistance and for physical assistance, that we can use these robots. And if you look at sort of the business case, for one year of going to a nursing home in the US, the cost is $80,000. If you stay at home, and even if you have a nurse coming by, it's only 20000 a year. So if we capitalize this over three years, the savings will be about $180,000. So even if you build a robot that costs sort of the equivalent of a cheap car, it's still a good business case. So this is coming in. We're seeing IBM, we're seeing Toyota pursue this to actually be able to do elderly care for people so that you can stay in your normal social environment and you don't have to go up to a managed care facility. For children, we're seeing this as an emerging market. For instance, for education of children, how can we help educate them the right way? How can we give them the right mentorship for we'll be able to do this? Um, and so how can I help this little guy here actually get the best possible education? These robots are now coming out in the price range of two to $8,000 that will allow us to do much better education than we do today, and very much individualized education. So that's going to be a really cool opportunity. So you have a pepper here at QUT. One of the problems that we have with most of the robots that's on the market today, I sort of characterize it, is in the time to boredom is measured in hours. 
you know, most of these are very predictable. You see it and you know, see Pepe say, oh, this is cool. An hour later, you're like, yeah, okay, I've heard it. Uh, you know, this is a Jibo. All of these are boring. So we need to get to a place where it understands what entices you, what engages you, how can we do this the right way, and still do it for $2,000. So there's still some interesting research to be done in that space. We're seeing robots being used in challenging environments, going into a nuclear power plant, going in and understanding do we have a collapsed structure. We're seeing robots being used for explosive ordnance dismissal and improvised explosive devices rather than sending in a guy in a bomb suit, we send in a robot. If we blow up the robot, this is bad news, but that just implies that we just saved a life. So it's very important to think about how do we use this in the right way to be able to, to, to get to this technology. So we're seeing nuclear contamination and cleanup, it's very important. Inspection of infrastructure and understanding how we do sort of reasonable protection. So we've seen this, for instance, in the US where we've had collapsed sort of facilities where we're trying to maintain nuclear fuel, and it's very important. We're sending robots to space, so you probably don't think about it. We've had a robot on Mars for the last 16 years, going around and doing science, and we still can't send people to Mars, so we can use the, the surrogate of sending up people, uh, and actually do this very successful for very long-term missions. So right now there are two robots on the International Space Station that are being used to conduct experiments that are repetitive enough that you don't need to have an astronaut uh, do this. So this is an example of where we're expanding the frontiers of, uh, of using robots. So we've seen a lot of progress in robotics, sort of in terms of doing driverless cars, in terms of doing autonomous flying system. We're seeing this thing called deep learning that's being used for doing much better machine learning so we can do adaptation. We're getting collaborative system, but we're still not. Some of the areas where we're really bad is, for instance, building good grippers. Building good hands is remarkably difficult. You might not be aware of this, you have about 300 sensors in each of your fingertips. So, so the robots, we're, you know, we're still in the stone age in terms of being able to do gripper technology. I would claim that most of the robots we deploy requires you to have a PhD in computer science, which is maybe not quite where we need to be. And we're very, it's very expensive to build most of our systems. So to give you an example of how hard it is to do grasping, here's this young lady um, that's trying to light a match. You know, how hard can it be? One of my good friends, Roland Johansson in Sweden did this, and you can't really tell, but it took six seconds for her to light a match. Okay, let's for a second play with this young lady uh, and anesthetize her so she no longer has any haptic feedback. She has full motor control, she has everything else, but we just took away her haptic sense. It's perfectly easy to do and she recovers fully after a little while. And now the question is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a computer vision researcher, so I said, yeah, who cares, you know, it's just touch, you know, we can do this, it's not hard, okay? Let's just say I was wrong. And we tested her before, she has full dexterity and it, it, she just doesn't have a sense of touch. For me, that was sort of an eye opener, how hard this is, 24 seconds. So a 400% reduction in performance, simply because we don't have touch. And we don't have robots today that really have a good sense of touch. So we are over here. So when you see a clumsy robot, think back and say, yeah, Henry told me they would be clumsy. Um, you know, there's a reason for it. The other reason we have to do this is to build systems. These are the number of companies that are trying to build components for your autonomous driving car. Um, and all of them have a different suggestion for how we should do it. 
So getting all of this onto the same page so we can actually build efficient autonomous cars is really, really difficult for us because they don't agree. So some of the things we're seeing is that we, we need to, we're starting to see some robots that have, that can work with people, that can, this is a robot that's sort of the size of an upper torso, has two arms, it can do this. It's designed for doing electronics manufacturing. Uh, it has sort of the same size factor, so you can basically take out a person and put in a, an autonomous robot to do assembly. They're not primarily put in to save money. They're primarily put in to improve quality. So the biggest sort of differentiator we're seeing with robots is that even from the automotive industry, it used to be that you could get Monday cars and Friday cars and the middle of the week cars. Now we get seven day a week cars simply because we use robots to get the same quality all the time. So we're seeing these coming in and driving forward a new market where they can work directly with people and they're actually very efficient at working with people. So they can help me cook in the kitchen as an example. Another thing we have to start thinking about is how do we build effective interfaces? I don't know what it's like in Australia. In the US, the average adult person spends half an hour a day playing first-person games. So some of you are picking up my slack. I don't play first-person games at all. But the average does it for half an hour. The average 20-year-old American male has spent 12,000 hours playing computer games. That's two years with no sleep. They are experts, you know. So when I go out to them and I say, this is what my interface looks like, then they know what this means. This is built into your thumbs. <laughs> so if I can build robot interfaces that look like this, you know, instant experts. And unfortunately, that's not how we design interfaces today. If I do this, they're instant experts. So we need to sort of rethink our paradigm and say, who are the people entering the workforce? What's their skill set? At least in the US, you can't always make the assumption they can read but you can make the assumption they know how to do this. Uh, and you can make the assumption they know how to use a cell phone. So, you know, so it's very important for us as researchers to adopt technology where people, I got it. So I walked out one day and I was trying to use this for a military robot. You know, I'm too old. So I came and said, the, the orange button is for what? And one of the kids came up and said, yeah, yeah, give it to me. And then he took it and he drove off it. And I was like, damn, you know. So that's what we need to be able to do. We need to be able to think about how do we adopt this technology in such a way that people can easily use it and has to be easily accessible. The other thing we're seeing for our robots is that camera technology is becoming dirt cheap. You know, I still used to have old film cameras that's down here. And we're starting to see sort of electrical cameras here. And this is orange thing here. That's cell phone cameras. Just let me tell you how big that is. You know. There are a gazillion more cell phone cameras than there are so regular cameras. The most common camera available today is an iPhone. If you go and talk to the camera company or the, the phone companies, so I work very closely with Qualcomm, they say that a camera costs $1. And if you want the computer to go with it, it costs $9. So for $10, you can get a camera and the associated computer to be able to process your images. So if you need to understand what happens to the environment, put in a camera, and if that's not enough, put in two. It's only 20 bucks. So it's really cheap to get this technology. We're still not very good as robotics researchers in really understanding, understanding these images, and that's why Peter has the Center for Robotics Vision, because there's still a few challenges left here on what do we actually do with all of those cameras. So that's a big opportunity. We're starting to see ways where we can train robots, sort of, we can have farms of robots that are actually getting trained 
using uh, machine learning to be able to do this sort of very effectively. So we are getting to a place where we can do this with, with a limited amount of cost. We're getting to where we can understand the environment. It's still hard for us to do. In most cases, we can't recognize the objects. You might not be aware of this. Your average grocery store has 45,000 different objects in there. We can't recognize all of them. So we can do the soda section or the flower section, but we can't do all of them. So that's one of the places where we still have sort of a fairly large challenge of being able to do this well. Most robots today require two operators. I want to go back to some of my former colleague, uh, Magnus Egerstedt from Georgia Tech. I want to think about this so that we get to a place where you should think you as yourself as the director of an orchestra. You can stand up here and wave with your hands and you get music. Today, it requires all of these to be able to get him to do anything. So we sort of need to reverse the world where we can get to a place where a single person can use all this federation. I mentioned before I have 300 computers in my home. Soon I'll have 300 robots in my home. I don't want to have to learn how to use each of them. I should be able to go to work and say, clean up. And by the time I get home, you know, I will have a shiny new home. So how do we get to this place where we can do this? This is one of the challenges we have for being able to do this. So we need to understand how can we sort of do the integration of people and autonomous systems very well without having to resort to Lawson's picture of having to name everything in my home. This is the door, this is the window. You know, so that's sort of where we are today. So we need to have much more intelligence so that we can do this very easily. So the other thing we have to think about, how do we do education? How do we make sure that people in a future workforce, we are going to displace jobs. So I'm not going to try and sort of paint a rosy picture and say we all going to have our jobs. If you're a taxi driver, if you're a lorry driver, if you're a number of these, those jobs are going to get displaced. So we need to figure out how do we re-educate these people so that they continue to be a valuable part of our economy. We need to start thinking about this for, you know, how, and one of our big challenges is that less than 10% of the researchers in robotics are women. I want more women in here so we can actually get them to engage with this technology. We need to understand what this does do to trade school education. What does this do to your college education? So it's very important for us to have this discussion about how do we educate the future workforce and do this really well. The other thing is that we will start having sort of shared infrastructure that will be used to try and so Peter is building a fantastic facility here at QUT. I want to understand how I can use this when I go back to San Diego, so I don't have to replicate it. We can't afford to give everybody a, the equivalent of a large telescope. So we need to figure out how, as a, as a community, can we get together to do this? How can we do autonomous test driving? How can we do autonomous flight? So there's a number of these research questions that are really hard for us to do and to do really well. And we need to think about some ethical, legal, and economical context to understand that how do we design robots that are ethical? How do we design sort of so, so they're legal? What is the economical implication? So Ron is here for a year and is sort of one of the world's foremost experts on, on ethics and legal aspects of how do we deploy robots and how do we do this well, which is incredibly important for us. You know, so I said we can get autonomous flying. Until we figure out how to do it in civilian airspace, I might have the best airplane on the world. It's not gonna go anywhere off the ground. We don't understand how driverless cars can be on the roads with the other one. If there is an accident of an autonomous driving car and a manually driven car, who's responsible? We don't have legal frameworks for this. We need to figure this out. The other is we need to have privacy. 
I don't know if you saw, Amazon recently came out with this fantastic new device that's sort of the Amazon Echo on steroids. It now involves a camera. And the recommendation is that you should put it in your bathroom. I'm not going to put cameras in my bathroom. I'm sorry, guys. You know, this is not a good idea. You know, so, so Marie, my wife, said, I'm going to give you one of those. And I was like, hell no. And I was like, why would I want cameras in my bathroom? Amazon's argument is that you can do this so that when I dress, it will tell me whether this is an appropriate dressing style. And I'm like, I can figure that out without having a camera in my bathroom. Uh, so this is scary. People haven't thought about the ethical implications of how we use this technology. So we need to be very careful. Who should store this data? The same thing with the Amazon Echo. When you buy one of those, you put eight microphones into your living room. Some of them put eight microphones into your bedroom. I'm sorry, there's noises coming out of my bedroom that I don't need anybody else to hear about. Uh, you know, so we need to make sure that we do this well. And so far, we've been dominated by technology and not by how we do this well. So we need to be very cognizant of how we do this the right way. So in summary, I think you can see robotics is right now on a tremendous growth trajectory. We're seeing it's going to permeate all aspects of your life. We still have some basic problems we haven't solved in terms of ethics, in terms of law, in terms of how do we make it robust enough to do it every way. We need to figure out how do we get people along? How do we educate people so that we actually can do this the right way? And of course, it gets out here so we can make some money. I'm part of a, uh, you might not be aware of this, but there's a tremendous amount of money available right now to get invested into robotics. So I'm part of an investment fund, and right now we have a billion dollars we're investing in robotics. So, so there's no shortage of money, there's a shortage of ideas. Uh, so we need to figure that out. So with that, I'll say thank you for listening. And um, there is a roadmap that, that, that you can download. It has November 7th and has the wrong introduction. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you can still go and look at it, and it will tell you where I think and where 200 people from across the world thinks robotics is going to be 5, 10, 15 years down the road. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.